Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. How do you know if you're spiritual? Well, you know you're not spiritual if your Bible still creaks when you open it in church. You know you're not spiritual if you thought the narthex was that thing next to your vocal cords. You know you're not spiritual if you think Left Behind is the sequel to the movie Home Alone. And here's one for you pastors. You know you're not spiritual if the producer of Survivor 3 asks to film your next church board meeting. And for you theologians, if you can think this one through, you're not spiritual if you thought Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is Benny Hinn's next TV program. But the subject of my message has to do with assurance, so you know you're not spiritual when you have doubts about your salvation, and you know you can't be all that you should be spiritually when you have doubts about your salvation. The main subject of this conference is the spirit-filled life, and uh, the assurance of salvation and being spirit-filled, of course, go hand in hand. I understand spirit-filled to mean a life that is dominated by God's spirit. If a person is controlled by God's spirit, we would characterize that person as spiritual. And my subject is how assurance impacts spirituality. Assurance is not only the birthright of every child of God, it is also the bedrock of that child's growth in the Christian life. Some of the New Testament's most vehement passages of warning and rebuke refute the legalism and works theology that threatens to subvert the Christian's assurance. And that's why it is so important uh, in a that we have a conference and address a topic like this. In fact, I've changed the name of the title a little bit, you notice, to The Place of Hope in the Spirit-Filled Life, because we're going to focus in on that idea. We talk a lot about of assurance of salvation, but have you noticed that the word assurance is not really used that much in the New Testament, just a few times, and maybe just a few times in relationship to salvation? Usually we find um, assurance given in words that have to do with faith, it is inherent in faith in Christ, and it is sometimes expressed in the words know or knowledge. We certainly find it in the many assertions and promises of eternal life through faith in Christ in many verses in the Bible. But the word that we so commonly use when we talk about assurance of salvation is uh, only used perhaps a few times in relationship to actual assurance of salvation in the New Testament. There is a word, however, I think occurs consistently and frequently that speaks of an assurance that we can have, and that is the word hope. So I want to look at how the concept of assurance of salvation is expressed in the word hope, and not only that, but see how hope affects the believer's spirituality. And to do that, I want to look at hope and spirituality as it is presented in the opening verses of Colossians chapter 1. I did a study of this recently and was just kind of fascinated and and taken with this idea and the connection that hope had to the spirituality of the Colossians, and that's what we hope to point out today. There's a very helpful passage here in chapter 1. It shows how assurance and spirituality merge, and while there may be many evidences of spirituality given in the New Testament, one that Paul repeatedly refers to is a triad of three virtues faith, love, and hope. You've heard those repeated in the New Testament, and we see that triad in Colossians 
chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And I think it is a real key to understanding the role of assurance in the Spirit-filled life. So let's talk about faith and love as spiritual indicators. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, we find Paul thanking the Lord for the Colossians as he is prompted to pray for them. And what exactly is it that has stirred him to give such a response, a grateful response and a prayerful response? Well, in verse 4, he gives us the reason. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. Now, you, most of you as pastors, would agree that that would be an encouraging report to any spiritual overseer, wouldn't it? To hear of the faith that your people have towards God and the love that they have towards one another. And though Paul had probably never met these believers, uh, he was greatly encouraged to hear these two vital signs uh, are thriving. Faith in Christ, I believe, speaks of the vertical dimension of spirituality. Faith that saves us, but also that sanctifies us. There is the fact of faith in Christ that gives us eternal life, and there is the ongoing faith that progresses us down the path of sanctification, discipleship, spiritual growth. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's talking about that ongoing faith that, we, that is required in the spirit-filled life. The second aspect of the Colossian spirituality had to do with their love for other believers, and this was on the horizontal dimension. Such love is a consistent mark of spirituality in the New Testament. There are many verses you could think of. Love would, of course, find expression in many good works and in service towards others, and love is considered a fruit, maybe the fruit, the first fruit of the Holy Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22. In fact, if you look at verse 8 in Colossians chapter 1, he talks about their love in the Spirit, indicating that it is a direct result of their Spirit-filled life. It is, a, it is a fruit of the Spirit. It seems that Paul could not have received a more reassuring report of the spiritual condition of the Colossians. In both their relationship to God and in their relationship to others, they were evidencing the fruit of the Spirit. They were living the Spirit-filled life. So. Before we go on to talk about hope, however, in this triad of faith and love and hope in Colossians chapter 1, and point out the relationship of those terms to one another, I want to take a little excursus to define biblically what hope is. We need to do that because, biblically speaking, you, you are aware, hope has probably a different meaning than the common English usage of the word hope. In the English language, it is most frequently used as something that of a desire, a subjective desire as a noun, or it means to want something very much as a verb, as if I were to say, uh, I hope I catch a big fish. Now, there's no assurance attached to my desire to catch a big fish. You can trust me on that one. The biblical idea of hope, however, is expressed in the simple formula, hope equals desire plus expectation. There's no doubt in the biblical sense of the word, most of the times the word hope is used, although it is used sometimes in subjective sense. The biblical use of hope is very close to the idea of faith 
both in the English sometimes and in the Greek language. In fact, Webster gives one definition of the noun, which it labels as archaic, but actually defines hope as trust or reliance. As if, uh, for example, someone might say, uh, I voted for George W. Bush in hope that he would restore dignity to the White House. Isn't technology great? <laughs> so not, not surprisingly, in the New Testament, hope is often attached to God's promises. In many verses I could give you and have listed in my documentation. The close relationship of hope to faith is especially evident in Romans 4.18, where it is said that Abraham in hope believed. Those who have hope wait for God's promise with perseverance, Romans 8.25 says. And hope, like faith, is induced by the Scriptures. It is sourced in the God of hope, the Bible says, uh, and infused in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 15.13, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope is used as a virtual synonym for faith in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, where Paul speaks of hope in Christ. In Colossians 1, 23, to continue in the faith is to be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And hope is a forward-looking faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11:1 1 tells us. The believer's faith and hope are in God, 1 Peter 1, 21 says. So the Bible uses hope to express the assurance that what God has promised us will be realized. And for Paul to say that hope does not disappoint in Romans 5, verse 5, requires that he understands hope not as a desire, which can be disappointed, but an assurance from faith that something promised will come to pass. In Hebrews 6, 11, assurance and hope are joined together in close relationship in the phrase, assurance of hope. This objective meaning of hope is the overwhelming use in the New Testament. It is an expression of faith and as such uh, expresses the assurance of the future outcome of that faith. We might say that faith looks backward to what God has promised as a basis for what God will do. Hope looks forward to the realization of the blessings that were procured through faith. Hope is the assurance of future salvation based on the assurance of present salvation. And logically, you can't have one without the other. Thus, we find that the content of hope includes things like salvation. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, I won't give you the references right now. Perhaps someday the document will be available, but it includes righteousness. The content of hope includes the resurrection of the dead. We have a hope for the eternal life, a hope for the glory of God a hope for Christ's coming, and a hope of inheritance. But now we want to go back to Colossians chapter 1 and see what is the relationship of hope to faith and love. Because I believe that we'll see that hope is a cause of the Colossians' spirituality. And though that triad of faith and love and hope appears in other Bible passages, in Colossians chapter 1-5, Paul seems to link it link hope to faith and love in a causative way, if you look at verse 5, which starts out, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Their faith in God, their love for others, is caused, stimulated, motivated, arises out of their hope that they have, which is laid up in heaven. There is a causative relationship. 
And while the causative sense of this clause is not overwhelmingly clear in the original language, uh, most commentators think it is obviously causative here, that hope is the cause of their faith and their love. But back to the relationship of hope and faith and love. How do they work together? The role of hope as assurance, which stimulates faith and love, can maybe be understood if we illustrate it by a marriage. Now, you take a marriage that is built on a sure covenant. We'll call those the marriage vows. A marriage that is built on the sure covenant of vows that are uh, publicly made with full confidence of the partners gains the confidence of each of the partners that they will not be betrayed, that they will enjoy a lifetime together. The assurance of their mate's faithfulness will move each of the partners to trust one another even more and to have more and more confidence in one another. In other words, to grow in faith towards one another. Not only that, but when they have this assurance of their commitment to one another, when they know they have the un unconditional acceptance of one another, will they not also be more likely to open themselves up and to risk love for one another and then learn to love one another more deeply? Of course they will. And so their faith is in one another, strengthened by their assurance, their hope of a lifetime marriage. Their love deepens because they know there is a marriage that cannot be lost and their mate is committed to them. And that marriage is based on clear commitments and promises that are believed. On the other hand, take a marriage that is not based on clear commitments. Take a modern living arrangement, a man and a wife who live together and are not married. There is no assurance from the other partner. There is no strong commitment. And there is no basis in which they can have confidence in one another. Nor will there be the willingness to risk and expose one another in true love. And so their faith will be stunted. Their confidence in one another will be stunted. Their love for one another will not grow. And there will be less willingness to extend themselves towards each other. So a believer who has a sure hope will more readily trust in God. He knows that if his future is secure, then God is also going to provide in the present. And likewise, a sure hope that God will provide in the present and in the future will free the believer to develop his relationship with God, to be more concerned with others, to express his love and his service to others unselfishly. I believe that it was very intentional that Paul emphasized hope in Colossians chapter 1. If you look at verse 5 again, you see that he talks about it as a hope which is laid up for them in heaven. Those are words of emphasis, words of security, words that he put there to let the Colossians know that their hope is secure. They're words of strong assurance. Now that word laid up, that is translated laid up, literally means um, to be reserved or to be set aside for a purpose. It was the word used in the parable of the talents in Luke chapter 19 for the uh, servant who took the parable and hid it in a handkerchief and it says he he put it aside, he laid it up for his master. He, it wasn't the right thing to do, but he made sure it was secure when his master returned. Likewise, Paul spoke of the crown of righteousness that was laid up for him and that would be given to him at the Lord's appearing, 2 Timothy 4.8. And so in verse 5, this idea of our hope being laid up for 
for us in heaven conveys the assurance that it will be realized. And what more secure realm could Paul choose to assure them that their final salvation would be waiting for them than the vault of heaven in the presence of God? Hope is as sure as heaven is secure. So hope or assurance of our future blessings not only stimulates faith and love, but there are other results. It is the very foundation of the spiritual life that has other fruits. For example, it stimulates joy. Romans 5.2, Romans 12.12 talks about the joy that comes from hope. It gives us confidence in speaking of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3. It brings us closer to God in our walk with him, according to Hebrews 7. And it motivates us to purity, 1 John 3. So we see that spirit-filled godliness is based on the believer's assurance of present salvation and the hope of future salvation. But Paul goes on and he relates this idea of hope and the sure, sureness, the certainty of their hope to the gospel itself. So let's talk about hope in the gospel. Hope is grounded in the true gospel of grace. You see, in verse 5, he says that this hope that is laid up for them in heaven is that which they heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Now, you remember that Paul speaks against the background of heresy threatening the Colossians, a heresy, probably a mixture of Judaistic legalism and mysticism, asceticism, anything else that promised them completeness and sanctification, and Paul is trying to show them that there's nothing that you can add to the hope that is in Christ. And he reminds them that that hope came to them in the true gospel. Now, that makes sense to you and I here at a free grace conference. We know that any other gospel cannot give hope to the Christian, cannot give the assurance of hope. And that is because the true gospel is according to grace. And when we depart from grace, we depart from assurance. And Paul knew that they would also depart from hope. Only grace assures us of our eternal destiny because it makes salvation unconditional instead of subjecting it to personal performance. So you subvert grace and you subvert the gospel. You subvert the gospel and you subvert hope. You subvert hope, you subvert assurance. And without assurance, there is no basis for a spirit-filled life. Paul has emphasized hope in his opening words to the Colossians because they were threatened with those who wanted to steal it away, as he describes in chapter 2 when he talks about the dangers of legalism. Well, let's see if we can tie this together even more as we go on in chapter 1, because Paul goes on to talk about the importance of hope in maintaining their spirituality. Paul was protecting the Colossians' hope because it was the key to their sanctification and their spiritual life. And that's why the idea of being steadfast in their hope is addressed again in verses 21 through 23. The correct interpretation of that passage reinforces the relationship between hope and spirituality that we just looked at in verses 3 through 8. Now, you recognize Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 is what we might call a problem passage. One of the passages that you will often hear as a pastor or teacher, someone will come up to you and say, well, what about this passage? And there are different interpretations and different views of this passage, and I think there's only one view that is very consistent with what Paul has said so far about hope and assurance. 
Let me read quickly. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Now, I believe that we can start out by saying that there are two very incorrect ways of understanding Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And both of these incorrect views assume that the phrase to present you wholly blameless and irreproachable in his sight means to enter into heaven. The Arminian interpretation says that this presentation salvation, we'll call it, depends on the believer's faithfulness in his conduct to the gospel is faithfulness in conduct and to the gospel. In other words, salvation can be lost. That would be the Arminian view. The other interpretation uh, that is very common in reform circles, but certainly not restricted to there, interprets this passage through the lens of perseverance. They see the conditional, if you continue, referring back to the reconciliation of verse 21. And the presentation of verse 22 is again entrance into heaven. So the interpretation is that if a supposed Christian does not persevere or continue in the faith, it will prove that this person was never really a Christian or reconciled to begin with. Such a person would not enter into heaven or be presented as holy. I think that we won't spend any time arguing against those views here, I think that uh, those are two of the weaker views we'd recognize, but there are two good interpretations, I think, that can handle the verse in a way that is consistent with God's grace. It avoids the theological pitfalls of the Arminians and the Reformed Calvinists. The first interpretation assumes that the if has in view the reconciliation and or the presentation either could be in view but it assumes that uh, the presentation is referring to final salvation. And those who hold this view believe that the Greek construction here in the conditional clause expressed by the if is what is sometimes called the first-class condition or simple condition and expresses more certainty than doubt. In other words, the apostle would be saying then, if, and I'm sure you will, continue in the faith. And so sometimes it would be translated even with the word since, since you will continue in the faith. However, there are some uh, who dispute that use of the con that first-class condition. It is not always used so in the New Testament, and I think they have good arguments for that. There's another interpretation which I think is the best. It takes the presentation of verse 22 not as an entrance into heaven, but as the prospect of one's evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. How we will be presented to Christ when we go to be with him. In this view, the apostle is declaring that faithfulness and conduct and a sure hope in the promise of the gospel will yield a holy, blameless, and irreproachable life at the Bema. And I'm going to give you seven supports for this view. First, it correctly and consistently assumes the saved status of the Colossian readers. 
Paul is not writing to pretend Christians. He's writing in verse 2 to saints and faithful brethren in Christ. He's writing to those, verse 3, who have a reputation of faith and love, as we've seen. Verse 13, to those who have been delivered from the power of Satan into the kingdom of Christ. In verse 14, to those who have been redeemed. In verse 21, to those who have been reconciled. And how inconsistent and confusing it would be for the Apostle Paul to tell them that they were reconciled to God in verse 21 and then make it uncertain or conditional in verse 22 or 23. Besides, unbelievers don't have a faith in which to continue anyway. Duh. We could stop there, but I've got six more. This view does not make salvation dependent upon the believer's performance, but is consistent with the gospel of free grace, which Paul has emphasized in verse 5 and in verse 6. Did we point out in verse 6 how he mentioned the fact that it was the gospel of the grace of God in truth? It is as if Paul is emphasizing that very idea. And he reminds them again in verse 23 that it is that gospel, that gospel of truth, that gospel of grace that has saved them. Third, it reinforces the already expressed concept in verses 3 through 8 that the fruit of hope is sanctification. It's just a simple reiteration of that. Hope, we persevere in hope, we continue in faith, and it yields a sanctified life. Holy, blameless, irreproachable. Fourth, it is consistent with the non-absolute sense of spiritual maturity expressed as the apostle's goal of ministry in verse 28 and 29 at the end of the chapter. Here he talks about warning. He says, him we preach, Christ we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor. Paul knew that the goal of his ministry was to present people fully mature and complete in Christ-likeness. Not an absolute perfection. We know that. That's not the meaning of the word teleos that's used here. But the idea of mature or completeness in the sense of arriving at a goal is used. In the same way, the words holy, blameless, and irreproachable are not used in the same absolute sense here, but in the sense of mature. That is Paul's goal in ministry. Fifth, the concept of being acceptably presented to the Lord is found elsewhere in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 4.14, 2 Corinthians 11.2, Ephesians 5.27, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Jude 24. Many places Paul or the, the authors of the New Testament speak about being presented to Jesus Christ acceptably. Romans 14.10 uses the very same verb, charistimi to indicate the believer's appearance before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. So there's a strong connection. Six, that phrase, in his sight, which can also be translated before him, reminds of the believer's accounting before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, where each believer must stand before the Lord or in his sight and will be evaluated and rewarded according to his deeds. And you know the passages for the judgment seat of Christ. In Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. And finally, the qualitative terms, and really we've kind of said this, holy, blameless, and irreproachable are not used forensically or in the sense of perfection or legally as the word justified might be, but of relative sanctification 
and they represent the goal of ministry in much the same way that terms, similar terms are used for the qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. When a man is said uh, to find an elder who is um, above reproach, we know that that is not an absolute standard or we would not have elders in our church. It is used in a relative sense. And so it is here. The achievement of this goal, then, that Jesus Christ would present them holy and blameless and irreproachable to the Father depends on their not, quote, not being moved away from their hope, which they heard and they believed in the gospel. And we want to emphasize that they heard and accepted that hope in the gospel. Thus, the warning is not to shift from the position of confidence in their future, which they presently enjoyed. Hope was their anchor for spirituality. And even to say those words remind us, reminds us of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 through 19, where hope is called an anchor of the soul, which brings us into the presence of God, the safest place possible. The Colossians will reach their spiritual goal only if they remain in this safe harbor, firmly anchored to Jesus Christ himself. Now, if we were to go outside of Colossians chapter 1 and expand our study of hope, we would find that hope is a unique aspect of Christianity. It makes perfect sense to us who understand grace, since we know there is no other gospel that can give hope and assurance. And so in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul speaks of Christ in us, who is the hope of glory. In Ephesians 4, 4, one hope is listed along with one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, as that which should unite Christians in one mind. Just as there is no other legitimate Lord, faith, or baptism, there's no other legitimate hope. Hope is as indispensable to our Christian experience as Jesus Christ himself. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul uses the phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. My friends, you see why when we talk about assurance, I think we should give a little more attention to the word hope. It is so prevalent in the New Testament. So now we see the centrality of a living hope, as Peter said in chapter 1, verse 3 of his first epistle. This living hope is a basis for the Christian's spiritual growth, maturity, and well-being. We're not surprised that 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18 talks about the helmet, the believer's helmet, as the hope of salvation. Surely great strategic importance is placed on one's Hope, which protects a very vital area represented by the head in that analogy, which likely represents our attitudes and thoughts, which is the habitation of faith and assurance. To be without hope or to move away from hope is to move away from the realm in which the Spirit can work in us. Hope is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. Without a firm hope or assurance of our salvation, we revisit our pagan experience of when we were without hope and without God, Ephesians 2. Paul realizes that Christians can indeed be ignorant and can sorrow as others who have no hope in 1 Thessalonians 4, or he would not have said, I don't want you to be that way. Those without hope grieve the consequences of death and desperate uncertainty, but better things are expected of Christians. Well, what do we do with this truth? How do we handle hope? My hope, I use that in the sense of 
desire. In this study of hope, which I use in the sense of assurance, my hope is that this study of hope will move us towards several applications in our lives and ministries. Today, the Christian's assurance and hope is being threatened by poor theology on all sides. The Arminian has present assurance but no future hope. The Reformed theologian really has neither present assurance nor future hope. How can we enjoy the Spirit-filled life and move others towards it? Three suggestions. First of all, learn to live out our hope. Nothing condemns hopelessness like hope. When we live for the future hope of eternity and inheritance, we give a powerful testimony to the reality of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It is the hope of glory, the Bible calls it. Glory is the cumulative manifestation of God's attributes and character. And that's going to be our intimate experience in reality. But we can also have a foretaste of that in this life to the degree that we experience hope. Hope has a sanctifying effect on us. It moves us, and motivates us into greater faith and love towards others and joy and purity and brings us into the presence of God himself. It motivates us to obey the Lord's commands in order to have a richer experience in the promises that he has given us for the future. How sad it is to read the testimony of some of the Puritan theologians and their modern-day theological heirs who can only testify in their lives and in their deaths that they hope, in the sense of desire, that they are going to heaven instead of testifying that they have the sure hope in the sense of assurance that they're going to heaven. As Asahel Nettleton, a 19th century Reformed Calvinist preacher, said, quote, the most that I have ventured to say respecting myself is that I think it is possible I may get to heaven. More recently, R.T. Kendall observed, one of the most stunning discoveries I made at Oxford is that so many of these men who are household names in Reformed homes today died doubting whether they were saved. So we might say, let us not be like others who have no hope. Let us live and die confidently as we look forward expectantly to the enjoyment of our future hope. And in doing so, we magnify the grace of God to others. Live out your hope. But secondly, guard the believer's hope. In other words, as overseers, as shepherds, as elders, as pastors, as leaders in your church, we need to be careful that Christians don't move away from the assurance that they have in the gospel of grace. The gospel is the promise of God about a person's eternal destiny. To believe God's promise is to be assured of that promise. To be assured is to have hope. But as Paul implies, believers can be moved away from their hope. This can happen for a number of reasons. Maybe false teaching, sin, unfaithfulness, confusion. If our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ himself and Christ in us is the hope of glory, then the danger of moving away from the truth about Christ's person or work is also the danger of moving away from hope. We must preach the truth about Christ's person and work, lest believers be seduced by false teaching. And so Paul was so concerned, 2 Corinthians 11, Galatians 3, that the believers understand the truth about the true Christ and what he's done. But unfortunately, hope is often obscured by bad interpretation. 
Take, for example, the discussion of Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 that we just had. The average Christian is not likely to hear what I would say is the best interpretation of that passage. When I preached this view recently in my own church, Burleson Bible Church, I received this handwritten note from a man in our congregation, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and a former pastor. This is what he wrote me. I have been in Bible churches for 18 years. This morning was the first time that I have heard from the pulpit that if, in Colossians 1.23, was not allowed to cast doubt on the assurance of salvation. Usually, at best, this if is left unaddressed. At worst, it is, like you said, explained as, quote, they never were a believer to begin with, unquote. Thank you very much. I previously had given up that I would ever be in a church where grace would be taught like this. Thanks again. We must also carefully preach the condition for salvation. False conditions which can never really be obtained by anyone. Commitment, surrender, turning from all sins will automatically undermine hope when the inevitable uncertainty comes about the degree to which one has committed or surrendered or turned from their sin. That is why Grace Life has published a booklet called How to Share the Gospel Clearly. We must guard the believer's hope in the objective Lord Jesus Christ and the objective reality of his redemptive work, lest believers be deceived into a false hope, which is really no hope, based on their subjective commitment to him. And finally, let me say this. Pray for others to know this hope. Pray for others to know this hope. And I'm not even necessarily talking about the unsaved, probably here applying this mostly to believers. You know, that was Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18. He, he asked that they would understand the hope that they have in Christ. He wanted them to know the blessings that were theirs because of their election and salvation. And all Christians must learn to comprehend more and more fully the hope that their calling affords. And only then can Christians enjoy all the spiritual blessings and growth that God has in store for them. We must pray for those who live in the shadows of hopelessness to whatever degree and pray for those also who, with good or bad intentions, or maybe out of ignorance or misinformation, seek to steal the hope that is in other believers. And we must believe that they can change. Let me give you an example. Perhaps you've seen reports about what God has done in this group called the Worldwide Church of God. Now, you know that this group, the Worldwide Church of God, for decades was known and scorned by evangelicals as a cult, and rightly so. They denied the Trinity. They adhered to the Old Testament law. They kept Old Testament feasts and the Sabbath. They practiced strict separation and disfellowship their members who did not conform completely to their rules. But after the death of their founder, Herbert W. Armstrong, in 1986, his successor, Joseph Tecock, began to test the teachings of Armstrong against the Bible. That's a dangerous thing, you know. After some years of study, Tecock became convinced that Jesus had fulfilled the Old Covenant and that believers were now under the New Covenant. And he discovered grace, and it made a difference. And when the announcement of that discovery was made public in 1995, it split the group in half. Some followed legalism, and the other half followed grace. And they've kept the name, Worldwide Church of God, by the way. 
I recently had contact with the Worldwide Church of God pastor in my own town. I heard him give a testimony about God's grace, and I wanted to follow up and find out what he discovered, so I asked him out to lunch. He told me about his life under the law, which was pretty sad and miserable. He talked about a constant sense of what he called want and a constant sense of guilt. And he said, quote, that the denomination had lost their hope, unquote. But now, he said, under grace, there is an enthusiasm to live the Christian life and to serve God. I wanted to test him further, so I said, okay, uh, tell me, what would, what would you tell someone who asked you, what must I do to be saved? And his answer was as clear as a bell. Simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. So I tested him even further. I said, well, don't we have to submit or commit ourselves or surrender ourselves totally to him or live a life of obedience? And he said, quote, that will come later. Grace will teach you. I also invited this pastor to a Cajun dinner that we were having in our church. And I told him we'd be serving shrimp and crawfish. And he said, well, you're going to have to show me how to eat them. We weren't allowed to do that under the old system. <laughs> so free to eat crawfish. Ain't that great? Grace is great. Now, I admit leaving my meeting with this pastor with mixed emotions. I had great joy. I had great joy because here was a man, here was a pastor, here was a church, here was a denomination that had been liberated into the joy of grace. But I have to admit also that I was very angry when I left. After the pastor left, I expressed my anger that so many churches and cults have distorted the message of grace so as to steal Christians' hope and leave them in hopelessness and doubt. And then I felt a deep sense of sorrow and some shame for the many evangelical churches who have known the truth of the gospel for these centuries but have strayed so far from that truth. And if this cult could come so far to the light, why can't the evangelical church get it right? So I say to you, let us pray for those who need to have a living hope. No group or person is outside the power of God to change them. And let's pray that a church, the whole church at large, will have the grace to get back to the Bible and discover the hope that comes only through faith alone in Christ alone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.